This is an ABC podcast. In October 2005, ABC reporter Wendy Carlisle was chasing a story. It was about Australian mining companies' attempts to slow down public debate on climate change. And when I say she was chasing a story, I mean that literally. Mr Morgan, Wendy Carlisle from Background Briefing. I I wondered if I could just get an interview with you. The man she followed out into Melbourne's Federation Square was Hugh Morgan, the head of the Business Council of Australia. Do you believe that carbon is a risk risk for businesses? It will be. He declined our request for an interview, saying he's stepped out of the public arena these days. But back in 2005, Wendy Carlyle wouldn't take no for an answer. As she was tailing him down the street, Hugh Morgan had just attended a presentation about the risk climate change posed to Australian industries. He and one of his buddies made their way towards the intersection of Flinders and Russell Streets, explaining they were extremely sceptical about the information they just heard. I'm not sure that carbon is a poison, as he said. A pollution? No, no, a poison. He said it was a poison. I know, without carbon you can't get things to grow. No food. So I'm not sure that the language is quite right. But, you know, you understand what yes, I'm In fact, you'd be right? dead without carbon. You'd be dead without carbon. In fact, each time you, you breathe, breathe out, out you breathe moment. it out every moment. In yeah. fact, that's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's something to, to be pleased that there's carbon around. By 2005, the fact humans were causing the climate to change had been well established for 15 years. And here was the head of the nation's peak business lobby doubting those facts. Climates have been changing for millennia. They keep changing. He didn't just question the science, but the people who'd worked on it as well. But the actual integrity of some of the so-called scientists, some a bit worried about. By this stage, the Prime Minister John Howard had multiple ministers and top bureaucrats recommending that he adopt an emissions trading scheme as a way to push down carbon emissions. Hugh Morgan, a powerful figure in the Victorian Liberal Party, was making it clear it would not have his support. Mr Morgan, thanks very much for speaking with Background Briefing. (laughs) Thank you. At the time, his point of view was unusual. But it wouldn't be long until a significant proportion of the nation's media and political elite were saying similar things. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Australia If You're Listening, a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. For the first decade after climate change entered the political debate in Australia, the issue managed to stay fairly well tethered to science. Most political leaders agreed that climate change was a serious issue. They just disagreed on what to do about it. There were sceptics, but they tended to be across the political spectrum. But in the second decade, from 1997 to 2007, the debate was polluted with misinformation aimed at creating doubt among voters and political leaders. In this episode, the story of how Australia's understanding of this massive problem went backwards. In 1984, two decades before Wendy Carlisle chased him across Federation Square, Hugh Morgan was making headlines for his comments on a completely different issue. This is AM, I'm Rick Harrison. One of the country's most influential businessmen has drawn new lines of battle in the debate over Aboriginal land rights. 
Morgan was boss of Western Mining and was up in arms after Bob Hawke had won office on a promise to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders land rights across the country. Morgan opposed this, but instead of arguing the case on its merits, he resorted to outrageous, ridiculous and offensive arguments. Mr Morgan's point, and he was applauded enthusiastically, is that it's hypocritical of politicians to recognise Aboriginal claims for land rights without at the same time sanctioning other aspects of Aboriginal culture, such as cannibalism and infanticide. In the speech, he said that you couldn't celebrate any part of Aboriginal culture without celebrating every bad part of its history. The debate about land rights should be all-encapsulating. The speech was provocative and there was a huge backlash. Aboriginal leader Ossie Cruz believed it was not only insulting, but historically inaccurate. Life is very sacred to the Aboriginal people, even if Mr Morgan doesn't understand that. The Aboriginal Affairs Minister at the time, Clyde Holding, was furious. It's an insulting argument to many Aboriginal people. Right throughout Australia, Aboriginal people are desperately endeavouring to restore aspects of their own culture. To suggest that we would have to recognise aspects of Aboriginal culture, which Aboriginal people themselves have long long forsaken, is like really saying, well, we will judge the, the Christian church in Australia in 1984 by the actions of the Inquisition. I mean, it's just a nonsense argument. When you look at the land rights debate of the 1980s now, you can see the architecture of the campaign against action on climate change years later. How the fossil fuel industry reacts when it's threatened. The business models of Hugh Morgan and others in the mining industry were endangered by nationally legislated Aboriginal land rights. So... Land rights really emerges as an issue during the middle to late 1960s, and it's something which the Whitlam government takes on board. This is Judy Brett, historian and author of the quarterly essay, The Coal Curse. In that essay, she wrote about the parallels between this battle over land rights and the battle that followed over climate change. Like with climate change, the battle began with most people in agreement about what should happen. There's bipartisan support for the idea that Indigenous people should have some sort of land rights. Land rights legislation in each of the jurisdictions was either non-existent or very partial and, you know, you might say incipient or emerging. This is Professor Marcia Langton, an anthropologist and Foundation Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. The federal government under Gough Whitlam had legislated land rights in the part of the country it directly controlled, the Northern Territory. And I want to give back to you formally, in Aboriginal and in Australian law, ownership of this land of your fathers. Bob Hawke wanted to make those land rights available in the Northern Territory uniform across the country. The states uh, remained resistant to any change, especially Western Australia, Tasmania uh, and Queensland. They promise that they will legislate as a Commonwealth government for land rights in a way that will override the land rights legislation or lack of legislation by the states. The key thing, though, is that Indigenous people in the Northern Territory had the right to veto developments on their land, including mining exploration. Hawke was considering spreading that right nationwide. Obviously, the mining industry goes into a bit of a a panic on this and it lobbies hard. With land rights, as with climate change 20 years later, Hugh Morgan was fighting a battle, not just against policy, 
but against ideology. We are barely holding our ground in this ideological war. We need new strategies to reverse the tide which is currently moving strongly against us. One of those strategies is part of the standard political playbook in 2022, but was much less common back then. Morgan made extraordinary and ridiculous claims. Very nasty public campaigns vilifying Aboriginal people. He said the government wanted to create a separate Aboriginal-only country in the Northern Territory. He said non-Aboriginal people would be banned from entering parts of Australia. This frightened people and turned rational debate into a battle over nonsense instead. The mining industry funded television advertisements which depicted uh, children playing on a, on a board, uh, a, a, a wheel, with the black kid throwing the white kid off the, off the board continually. And another one had Aboriginal hands building a brick wall across Western Australia, frightened the white people in the suburbs into believing that there were millions of us and we were coming from, for their hills hoists and to eat their children. But Morgan, and others like him, needed a way to seed their ideas more broadly to really shift public opinion. They want to influence the elite and public opinion as well, but they want to influence key journalists. They want to set up networks of journalists and people inside of the governing parties. Morgan started promoting an idea which had taken hold in the United States, the right-wing think tank. American Enterprise uh, Institute is one of the leading think tanks uh, in the United States. It has a remarkable track record of dealing with uh, public issues, in debating them, in coming up with policy statements, and in seeking to influence public debate and public action on important issues. Think tanks had existed in Australia before, but they became more and more prominent during this fight, some with Hugh Morgan's backing. The think tanks provided right-wing public intellectuals, really, to give speeches, to write op-ed pieces, to go on the radio. The think tanks Morgan helped fund, including the Institute of Public Affairs, the IPA, were open about their relationship with mining companies. Western Mining is a a supporter of the IPA, as, as a number of other mining companies are. If you're funded by business and you're promoting their interests, doesn't that make you a business lobby group more than an independent think tank? Well, uh, um, uh, in a general sense, yes. Hugh Morgan also had to deal with another problem. Arguing that the jobs of rich mining bosses were under threat from Aboriginal land rights was a difficult sell politically. They're not the most sympathetic characters. So an alliance was built that we take for granted now in 2022, tying the mining industry to the agricultural industry. And so you then get this alliance between the mining industry and the farmers being established because both of them feel threatened. On top of the farmers, an alliance was built with the National Party, which saw mining as key to continued success in Parliament. They've somehow made mining the core of a regional identity very successfully in the way they'd previously done with farming. The alliance with farmers, the advertising campaigns, the think tanks, direct lobbying of the government and sympathisers in some sectors of the commercial media all formed a powerful network. The campaign against uniform land rights was successful. Labor dropped the policy. There's still more discontent in the Labor Party today over what some members regard as a backdown by federal cabinet on Aboriginal land rights. But... 
For the first time, Australia has recognised the legal existence of Aborigines prior to white settlement. In 1992, there was a huge win for the land rights movement, with the High Court handing down its decision in the Mabo case. European settlement of Australia was based on the premise of terra nullius, which basically means no person's land. Now, more than two centuries later, the High Court has recognised there were people here and their descendants have rights. It says, actually, there's some traditional rights to land that have survived the process of colonisation and so land title of some sort, native title, has continued to exist. It meant that Aboriginal people had a legal right to land title whether the government or business sector wanted it or not. Hugh Morgan kicked his campaign into an even higher gear. The economic and political future of Australia has been put at risk and our territorial integrity is under threat. In fact, it wasn't. Where the two have clashed, governments have generally sided with the miners. The 90s and 2000s saw an unprecedented boom in Australian mining, essentially unimpeded by native title claims. But by this stage, the network created by Hugh Morgan was solid and could be deployed to fight any threat to the industry. In the late 90s, a far bigger threat arrived in the form of climate change. I don't think that the population understands what's at stake in this issue. The News Poll survey of more than 1,000 Australians found 80% think Australia should ratify the Kyoto Protocol without the United States if necessary. More than three years after agreeing to limit Australia's carbon emissions in the Kyoto Protocol, the Australian Parliament was yet to ratify it. The international agreement had been signed by the Environment Minister, Robert Hill, but it wouldn't really change anything unless the government turned it into law back home. Prime Minister John Howard refused to do that unless the United States did the same thing. John Howard didn't want to leave the Americans out on a limb. So the compromise position was we would, we would stick to our commitments, but we wouldn't go through a ratification process. And yet there was significant pressure from the public to bring in an emissions trading scheme, which was recommended in the Kyoto Protocol. A scheme like this would impose a cost on emitting carbon and push the market away from fossil fuels like coal. For Hugh Morgan and the mining industry, this wasn't their first rodeo. A campaign against reducing our emissions would need to be fought on all levels – just as they'd fought against land rights. Hugh and I very definitely did not see eye to eye. This is Greg Bourne. At the time, he was the boss of the Australasian arm of oil giant BP. I was one of the members of the Business Council of Australia. And this is where he and Hugh Morgan clashed. The Business Council of Australia is a powerful organisation where 100 or so top companies join forces to lobby governments for change. Greg Bourne says most of the companies there weren't particularly fussed by climate policy. And at that time, you'd probably say there were you know, five to ten of the 100 companies who were very progressive. Five to ten companies who were vociferously against any change or even recognition of climate change. But Bourne says those five to ten companies, led by Hugh Morgan, held a lot of sway. Eventually, the only way the BCA could handle this was to not talk about it for three to four years. So it became sort of verboten within, within, inside. Yeah, ab absolutely. Basically, came verboten inside, and, and uh, that was that was a, a real issue. And it, it, it's sad from the BCA point of view the fact that it came to the lowest common denominator was the only place they could be, and that is so often what happens with multiple business associations. You end up going at the the pace of the slowest, the standard of the, of the lowest, and you 
don't move. That is a real problem. So the Business Council was paralysed. Morgan's second front was in the media. Almost certainly greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are not what is changing world climate. He wasn't alone in this. There was a vigorous campaign against climate science from fossil fuel companies in the United States, and it was gaining traction. If you lived through it, this is the part of the story that probably sticks in your mind the most. Before Kyoto, the public debate about whether climate change was happening or not was really on the fringes. Now, the public campaign ramped up. You rarely saw a story on climate change, including on the ABC, without someone countering the expert view claiming it wasn't happening. Or it was, but it wasn't being caused by fossil fuels. Or it was, but it wasn't nearly as bad as we thought. We shouldn't be throwing money at something that is not an environmental risk and letting our environment suffer as a consequence. Look, you have a large number of scientists who have invested huge amounts of uh, emotional and intellectual capital in careers based on greenhouse theory, and they're certainly very reluctant to give it up. Arguments like this fanned the flames of climate denialism. Prominent climate sceptics put forward convincing-sounding facts that they said disproved greenhouse theory. The satellite data uh, is showing us that there is no warming in the troposphere, and so it is now becoming quite evident that uh, the whole theory of heat entrapment from greenhouse gases is not valid. Their points, which are impossible for a non-expert to understand or debate, were refuted by experts who said that it was irresponsible for these arguments to be given equal media coverage. A handful of greenhouse sceptics have been given equal weight, particularly in the media. Um, The consensus is very strong uh, and it is supported in the peer-reviewed literature by some thousands of scientists. That both sides were being given equal weight played to the advantage of the sceptics, as well as anyone who had reason to want to stop emissions getting priced or taxed. It allowed media commentators like Andrew Bolt from the Herald Sun to say stuff like this. I believe there's a great uncertainty. I'm not an expert myself. I uh, have listened to the scientists. I know that for every claim there's a counterclaim. Bolt, eloquent and steely, became a leading voice pouring doubt on the concept of climate change. His argument was that scientists were split about whether it was happening or not. You can cite one scientific paper that might give an explanation friendly to global warming for it, and then I'd cite another one that doesn't. The point is, both papers exist. Bolt and some other News Limited columnists devoted a significant proportion of their columns and media appearances to casting doubt on the science, or declaring outright that it was a lie that people were too afraid to fight against. This is a lot of hoo-ha, and no one dares stand up against it, because if they do... They get ridiculed or treated like vandals. This new debate that the mining industry had shaped created a difficult situation for climate scientists. As it became more politicised, their comments were put under more and more intense scrutiny. There was certainly, from my personal perspective, a lot of heat because it led to my dismissal from CSIRO. This is Dr Graham Pierman, a leading CSIRO climate scientist for three decades. During that time, he had been interviewed dozens of times about climate change, usually in stories which also quoted climate sceptics. People who were providing no factual evidence of what they were actually on about. They had no peer-reviewed assessment of what they were saying. Pierman spoke in favour of an emissions trading scheme and a specific target for emissions reductions. 
CSIRO executive Steve Morton said at the time that wasn't appropriate. He's very free to talk about options for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's exactly what we're encouraging our staff to do. When it comes to being specific about which proportion of reduction by which date, that is clearly a policy prescription and that clearly intrudes upon the role of government. Pearman said the CSIRO was under pressure from the government to keep their scientists quiet. There were clear instructions provided to CSIRO to make sure that um, scientists, particularly myself, were not out there making statements about the threats associated with climate. He kept doing it. His boss asked him to stop. On one occasion, yes, I asked Graham not to uh, participate in a discussion which clearly had policy prescription mentioned. He said that you told him that he was not to talk about the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's not true. Uh, What is true is that I asked you not to talk about the Uh, the targets and the time frame in which greenhouse gas reductions should be made. I resigned because there was so much pressure on the organisation to have me not what was perceived to be making policy statement, uh, relevant statements to the media that I needed to stop. All of this had the effect of making it harder for regular Australians to tell the difference between fact and denial of fact. In the midst of the debate, ABC reporter Mark Horstman went into the Sydney CBD and started asking people if they could explain the greenhouse effect to him. The results weren't promising. Greenhouse effect is like um, when all the stuff affects our atmosphere. I think a lot of the bombs they're setting off all over the world too have got something to do with it. Can you tell me what the greenhouse effect is? No. (laughs) The huge hole over the... Um, Antarctic, which of course is affecting us, and burning all our children's skins. Absolutely no idea, but I know that humans have got a lot to do with it. Quite a bit going on there. Uh, But one thing that is clear is that people are confused. They know it's bad, but have mixed up a number of different environmental issues. This is a pretty good indication that at the time, average punters didn't really grasp the concept. For Morgan and his networks, it made fertile ground in which to sow their seeds of doubt. In 2003, a Cabinet submission to introduce an emissions trading scheme was rejected by the Howard government. That was considered a massive victory for Hugh Morgan. He was elected as the president of the Business Council of Australia soon afterwards, and climate scepticism started to take hold inside the government. I accept that climate change is a challenge. I accept the broad theory about global warming. I am sceptical about uh, a lot of the uh, more gloomy predictions. And even climate change believers like Malcolm Turnbull insisted that ignoring sceptics was wrong. What the opposition is giving us now is some kind of cramped political theology. Nobody is allowed to doubt Nobody is allowed to doubt. Skeptics are to be banned. But climate change still wasn't a big issue for voters, at least not big enough to affect the outcome of an election. The ALP ran in 2001 and 2004, promising to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. They gained seats in coal mining areas, but failed to defeat the coalition. In 2006, though, that began to change. Australia was in the grip of a terrible drought, which the Labor Party under Kevin Rudd argued was being made worse by climate change. But after years of inaction on the issue, 
John Howard was hesitant to tie the two together. As to the broader issue uh, uh, of uh, the relationship between uh, drought and climate change, uh, obviously uh, you can't totally separate the two, but I think it's important that we don't overdo the link. There was also a shift going on in the United States. Former Vice President Al Gore released his documentary film An Inconvenient Truth, describing the climate crisis. After winning an Emmy and an Oscar for the film, Gore shared the Nobel Peace Prize with the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. This is a chance to elevate global consciousness about the challenges that we face now. Gore's film had drawn heavily from the IPCC's fourth assessment report, the leading scientific knowledge of the time about climate change and the impact it would have. As the debate heated up over the basic facts of climate change, an inconvenient truth linked the United Nations process and the world's leading scientists with a Democratic Party politician who strongly opposed George W. Bush's stance on the issue. It popularised the science of climate change, but for a lot of people on the right of politics, it also associated that science with a political enemy. Gore flew into Australia and criticised John Howard's policies. I like John Howard. He's a friend of mine. I've had a good relationship with him for a long number of years. But I disagree with him strongly on this issue. Howard was asked what he thought of Gore's movie. Oh, it was all right. I thought didn't he, like it that much. No, no, I didn't. I thought he, he was he was how shall I put it uh, overtly. Uh, it showed a, you know, a, a degree of the peeved politician, the constant uh, jibes at the Bush administration. I like John Howard very much, even if he didn't like my movie very much. There was an increasingly obvious divide between the Democrats and the Republicans in the US and the Coalition and Labor in Australia on the topic of climate change. Mr Howard is a climate change denier. This is the modern equivalent of arguing that the Earth is flat, that NASA faked the moon landing and that Elvis is out there somewhere still flipping burgers in Florida. The debate over the science of climate change had found its place in party politics, and the issue was becoming significantly more heated. Robert Hill, who had just left Parliament, watched the way the debate changed as the 2007 federal election approached. The increased heat, I think, simply reflected the fact that policies were starting to have a significant effect upon sectors that, uh, you know, the rubber was hitting the road and the losers were becoming more apparent and were going to have to take the cost of of loss and they were fighting back more intensely and some of them were, some of them were fighting back because they said the science was wrong. Meanwhile, future Liberal MP Wyatt Roy was just getting into politics. I wouldn't actually call it growing climate scepticism. I would actually see it as political populism disguised as growing climate scepticism. Wyatt Roy says he thinks most of the scepticism we saw from politicians wasn't scepticism at all, but just politics. And I have definitely seen people who have been more reasonable and more rational and more interested in policy all of a sudden kind of drink the Kool-Aid and jump into a pretty irrational conversation when it comes to climate change. We spoke to a number of politicians from both major parties for this series who saw this shift in politics up close. It came alongside a change in how public debate works, a change in how the media covers politics, and a well-documented rise in populism in the US and Australia. And the kind of Trojan horse of that political populism has been climate change. 
Labor's Greg Combe agrees that for many public figures, climate denial was about politics more than science. You know, I've had plenty of plenty of experience with them. Um, they know that this is an issue to be addressed. As does current Nationals MP Darren Chester. Oh, look, I think Wyatt's assessment there is is probably accurate, uh, but I think the people who are, who are seeking to be popular off this issue doing themselves and, and the nation a disservice. I wouldn't, for example, describe me in any shape or form as being some sort of climate change zealot. By, by no means, I would say that I'm a, I'm a realist. By 2007, the battle over climate policy wasn't over how to act on climate change. Instead, it was being fought on terms shaped by Hugh Morgan and the big emitters. Was the science real and reliable? And should anything be done at all? On the 31st of March 2007, a world first event took place in Sydney. It was the night Sydney switched off. At 7.30, the Harbour Bridge, Luna Park and the Opera House turned off their lights and office blocks blacked out, all with the aim of tackling global warming. Millions of people turned off their lights for an hour. The city's electricity consumption dipped by a little over 10%. We've just made a little effort and turned everything off, off at home and did all the right things. It's good to look, look across the skyline to see all the lights slowly dimming out. It's just a fabulous symbolic gesture just to see what happens. It was a Saturday, meaning wedding receptions were underway. This couple made sure they participated in the event nonetheless, turning the lights off and lighting candles instead. It's been great. We planned a romantic night anyway, but it's been really lovely having the extra candlelight and having all our guests involved in Earth Hour. Earlier that day in Canberra, opposition leader Kevin Rudd held an event to talk about climate change. Climate change is not just an environmental challenge. Climate change is an economic challenge, a social challenge. The tone was dour. As though climate change was a heavy burden being loaded onto Australia's back, which we would all have to bear. Al Gore appeared via video link, conceding that the job ahead was difficult. There are no easy answers. There's no silver bullet. It was at this event that, with a sigh, Kevin Rudd first uttered the words which would shape climate policy in Australia for a decade. Climate change is the great moral challenge of our generation. I never understood why it was a moral challenge. I don't see it as a moral challenge. I saw it as an existential threat. The difference between a challenge and a threat is a challenge is something you don't really have to do, something you could put off till later or decide to ignore altogether. A threat is not that. It's something you have to act on whether you like it or not. Terrorism at the time was the threat. Climate change was a challenge. Well, I think what Kevin Rudd did is make it a mainstream political issue in Australia, and that's needed to be done. Former union boss and mining engineer Greg Combe was running for parliament for Labor at the time. My electorate was a coal mining electorate on the western side of Lake Macquarie in New South Wales. He says the moral challenge line was the right way to make people pay attention. John Howard had failed to grasp the importance of it uh, from an environmental and economic standpoint, leaving us quite vulnerable economically in particular. Um, And Kevin Rudd changed that as opposition leader. He did make it a central issue in the 2007 election campaign. Four weeks later, months out from an election, Rudd joined state and territory governments to announce an inquiry into how to address climate change economically. This led to the production of what became known as the Garno Climate Change Review by the economist Professor Ross Garno. 
the Australian people vote for us at the end of the year, I don't want to start off flat and cold on this question. I want the work well underway. That's why I'm pleased to be able to partner with the states and territories now to get this critical work done. Announcing a joint inquiry with the states and territories before you even get into government is an extremely Kevin Rudd thing to do. He knew that Ghana was going to suggest an emissions trading scheme of some sort and promised to implement it once that recommendation was made. A month later, John Howard also promised an emissions trading scheme. Australia will move towards a domestic emissions trading system That's a cap-and-trade system beginning no later than 2012. But the Kyoto Protocol ratification process was the biggest issue when it came to climate. John Howard said it was irrelevant whether we ratified it or not, given Australia was set to meet the target we'd agreed to anyway. Australia, it should be remembered, is one of the few countries in the world that is actually on track to achieve the emissions target set by the Kyoto Protocol. That argument didn't fly with the public. A short time ago, uh, Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. Kevin Rudd's victory speech showed how many things he had on his plate. To start building a world-class education system. In a 15-minute speech, climate change was mentioned only once in a list of things he planned to do. To act and act with urgency on the great challenges of climate change and water. Little did he know that within three years he would be facing attacks like this. I refer the Prime Minister to his statement that climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our time... Uh, Does he still believe that? Further, does the Prime Minister still believe that to defer action would be, and I quote, absolute political cowardice and an absolute failure of leadership? (laughs) The order. Climate change entered the Australian public conversation in the 80s as a scientific issue. Then in the 90s it became a tricky economic problem for us to solve. But throughout the 2000s, it increasingly turned into a political quagmire, as significant doubt was thrown into the debate by people trying to defend an industry under threat. Misinformation and doubt seeped into the public debate like a pollutant and made the whole issue toxic. And belief or disbelief in climate change became increasingly tied to which side of politics you were on. The consequences of this were disastrous. Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden, with research by Lexi Metherall. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Next. Kevin Rudd ratified the Kyoto Protocol as his first act as Prime Minister. Look at what a difference it makes when the people of Australia change their government. But after that, the partisan nightmare of climate change left Rudd unable to pass legislation to deal with it and put him on the brink of losing his job. Two years ago, Kevin Rudd's satisfaction rating was up around the 70% mark. Now it stands at 48%. The climate war, which would consume Australian politics for a decade, had begun. And as it raged, 
the effects of climate change became harder and harder to ignore. Every single time this area has a flood or a fire, we get nothing. That's next on Australia If You're Listening. 